hello to all of my friends at nerdculturepodcast.com. It's me, Mario. Woohoo! Mamma mia. You guys, you number one. Welcome to episode 36 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David and with me at NCP crew, Richo. It's very pleasant to have each and every one of you listening this fine day. Luke, it sucks, but you're going to listen to me anyway. Why would it suck? I don't know. <laughs> and Crystal. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> Why would it suck? <laughs> it's always pleasant because, listening to your dulcet Because tones. these are the rules that I lay down. I find it's best just to ignore Luke. He's in one of those moods. But it must suck <laughs> because it's a Luke. It's a, Luke, it's, nah. a, it's a Luke mood. If if we don't think it sucks, we're always wrong. So it must suck. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture related film, book, and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion throwing for good measure. Not only do we have the podcast, but we also have a website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com which features additional content not found on the podcast itself. For this episode, we have a dust jacket where we'll be discussing the novel Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison, as chosen by Richo. As well as continuing our new 52 One Year Later review of Part 2, with the bad stuff. <laughs> part 1, we had all the good stuff. <laughs> the bad stuff. Stay tuned, people. Yeah, got the bad so, stuff. if you're a positive kind of person, <laughs> listen to the last episode and just skip the part of this one. <laughs> No, don't do that. And more interviews with the stars of Armageddon Expo Melbourne. Just uh, once again, thank you, Armageddon Expo. Uh, it was a great show, uh, and uh, it really put out all the stops in order to make the media feel welcome and uh, gave us access to the stars. We had some great interviews last episode, and uh, we're going to continue that with some interviews this episode. It was a really great show. It was, and, and once again, just thanks to everybody who took the time to talk to us. It's, it's uh, brilliant stuff, and... And just, I always get a kick out of it, and uh, I hope you guys do too. Up first, Dust Jacket. Make Room, Make Room uh, by Harry Harrison was originally published in 1966. The reason I chose it, I've actually never read the book before. But the reason I chose it is that it's the book that the 1973 film Soylent Green was based on. Soylent Green with uh, Charlton Heston and uh, Edward G. Robinson in his final performance. Um, I know the movie gets a bit of mixed reviews, even amongst the NCP crew here, but I actually love the film. I'm a huge fan. Nothing mixed about it. It's just you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, so I chose this book because it is the basis of Soylent Green, and I've always wanted to read it, but um, it's actually... A, for a long time, it was a very hard book to get a copy of. And, and I've looked around a few times in the past, but um, yeah, just sort of in the last couple of years, it seems to have uh, actually multiple versions of the book have been released. So suddenly it's made this big resurgence, which is fantastic for somebody like me who's wanted to read it for a long time. It's also um, you know, quite an opportune time to read the book because um, Harry Harrison recently passed away. So we thought you know, this would be a good chance to honour the memory of one of the great science fiction writers. So... 
Make Room, Make Room is uh, set in the world of the future, which is, in our terms, actually the world of the past, because it's set in 1999, um, during the last, basically the last six months of the century, mm. uh, leading up to the start of the new millennium. The world at this point has basically used up most of its resources and is suffering from a massive overpopulation problem. So much so that there are 35 million people in New York alone, which is where the book is set. We follow the stories of three people within New York. Each person is, I guess, at a different social level, and that helps to give you the, the social structure of the world. But our main character is Andy Rush, who is a uh, police detective um, in a world where um, unemployment is rife and homelessness is rife. Um, he's in a position where he's at least got a job and is therefore able to rent an apartment um, with Sol, um, who is the owner of the apartment that he rents from, and they've become very good friends. Uh, our second character is Cheryl. Um, she actually lives basically amongst the upper class, but um, she's basically done that by becoming the girlfriend of a mobster. Mm. Um, so she's not living a happy existence, um, but she is, yeah, she is living in um, air-conditioned comfort, she has a steady supply of food and clothing. So, yeah, so she really is part of the upper class. He's basically a sugar daddy. Yeah, effectively. Our third character is uh, Billy Chung, who is a uh, Taiwanese boy who basically is really the bottom of the barrel as far as uh, class structure goes. Um, he's poor. He and his family live in uh, basically the rusted remains of a, of a ship. Um, that's actually part of a whole series of ships that make up a, a part of the town, basically, um, which is where a lot of the poor immigrant people live. And um, he is forced to really into committing crimes um, in order to survive. Um, we're introduced to him when he's actually stealing food um, during a food riot. So, yeah, so the, these three characters give us um, the overall picture of the world a very harsh and brutal and a just horrible world. And I think that one of the strengths of the book actually lies in the depiction of that world. Like when I'm reading the book, I just, it's so stifling and you can feel it in the way it's written. You just, you feel just how these starving, horrible people. I like your word, the use of the word stifling because it's actually, they're going through a heat wave. Exactly, yeah. Um, at the moment, so yeah. it's because of the greenhouse effect. Mm. I mean, when it's a heat wave, it is a heat wave. Yeah, exactly, and, yeah. The, know, weeks the, and weeks of, of uh, 100 degree plus temperatures. Um, you know, there's there's constant rioting going on, so you're feeling that, that sort of stifling social problems um, sort of rumblings as well. Um, Amenities get cut off constantly and the... Um, uh, people can do nothing about it except you know store as much as they can for a, a brief period until the amenities get fixed. Exactly right, and um, yeah, and you've got um, as I said a massive homeless homeless problem. Um, the apartment that Andy lives in, um, he actually has to walk over the top of people mm. just sleeping in the stairwells mm. and the corridors in order to basically get from his apartment out onto the street in order to go to work. So, um, so basically the story um, the. The events that bring these three characters together is that um, Billy gets a job as a messenger and delivers a message to the apartment that Cheryl is living in with her sugar daddy um, and decides he's going to come back and rob the place. Um, unfortunately, the sugar daddy is there and Billy kills him. 
Accidentally. Mm. Accidentally. And um, then, of course, Andy is called in, um, as a police detective, is called in to investigate the murder. He meets Cheryl, and they begin a relationship. Uh, their relationship becomes a big part of the story as well um, from that point onwards. So, as I said, the, the, the nature of the world um, and the social commentary and um, just, as I said, the stifling nature of reading this book um, is what I would consider the strength of the novel. Mm. Plus his economy of prose. Um. Yeah. There are, there are, his sentence structure, I wouldn't put it amongst the all-time great writers. Um, there are a couple of moments where he kind of just, not so much waffles on, but he'll have, you know, this and this and this yeah. and this in, in his sentences, which can, can get a little bit annoying mm. at times. I, I think the story is what really yeah. lags a lot in this book. Um, I love the setup. I love the introduction of the three characters and the way that is used to introduce you to all aspects of the world, I think is fantastic. Um, when the crime itself happens, it's like really interesting. Okay, now we're moving on. And Andy actually gets pressure put on him mm. from higher ups, which is almost unheard of in a world where, you know, multiple murders are occurring every day. He gets pressure put on him to actually investigate this crime and spends months doing it. Mm. So the so that, that first section of the book, probably mm. say the first hundred pages or so, I actually thought it was fantastic. I was really intrigued by what was going on, intrigued by the world. Also, as with a lot of this kind of um, science fiction, I was actually also comparing the world of today to mm. the world that's presented in the book. And obviously, you know, we do have a lot of these kind of problems, not to the extent that uh, Harrison's world does. Well, in certain but points certain around the world, um, absolutely. So I was comparing right, it to yeah. you know, China, to, to certain India. parts of Africa, to India. Yeah. And it's more than what we're eventually going to become, not mm. what we're, what we're exactly. Going to it's just it's interesting though heading. that Harrison thought that it would only take, you know, only take thirty odd years for us to get to that point, whereas we are actually sort of heading that way. But it, it is going to take a bit longer than uh, he anticipated, which is you know good for us at least. Well, well, I, think our became, I think we became more conscious of it than when he expected. Yeah, yeah very much so. Uh, for me though, the problem with the book is that after that. Um, the focus sort of shifts more to the relationship between Andy and Cheryl. Mm. Yeah, part of that is kind of interesting. The story does just start to meander from that at that point. The domestic drama seems to be at odds with the um, what the actual setup and what the concept of the novel is. Yeah. Um, it and I kind of I can kind of understand where Harry, where Harrison's coming from. You know, these wider social economic. Um, Agricultural burdens are going to put pressure on you know relationships and and the like, but because it's been so long delving into the problems, not even into the development of the relationship, but in the problems that the relationship their relationship faces as soon as they move into each other, it almost becomes a soap opera and it yeah. detracts from some more interesting wider applications. Yeah, but that also, that's also I mean I agree with everything that you're saying. Is that's also the opportunity to then delve a little bit more with Sol, who's uh, living yeah. with. Uh, Rush and that's there's there's Harrison's chance to get some exposition out um, about uh, what you know the good old days you know mm. what it used yeah. to be and how we come to this mm. and that's that's his big warning that's his you know this is where we're headed you know for the readers. After reading the book, I, I had a fairly clear idea in my mind of what you guys might say about it, and and I was pretty right. <laughs> oh, we've but, become uh, predictable. No, 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 not so much predictable. But it's just a matter of personal taste. I think I, I actually really enjoyed the book. I'm not saying that you guys didn't enjoy the book, but 
I, I looked at it more as, as if it was a more of a reflection of life and what life might be like under those circumstances if the world kept going that way. Viewed in that light, it didn't matter to me all that much how much uh, drama was going on with the storyline and whatnot. The characters were interesting, the writing was always interesting, the world building was interesting and I could really feel what it might be like living in that in that time. Life doesn't always have a resolution, there's not always a, a mystery to it, there's not always things happening, it's just life. That, perhaps that's the point that Harrison's trying to make, because yeah. there is a lot of that, um, a lot of day-to-day -day activities being presented in this book. Mm. So perhaps perhaps we are focusing a bit too much on the, you know, the crime and the drama of it all, when Instead, what he's trying to present is actually more of a human drama. I mean, I can see what you're saying. I, I got to the point where I was thinking, well, there's not much mystery to this uh, this actual murder or anything. And then I got past that and just I just read it as like a, a portrait of life in that time. And like I said with Anna Dracula, I just enjoyed the sort of the sightseeing and learning about what that culture and experience in that world was like. And I completely understand and accept what um, what's being said, and in some ways I agree with it. But I just kind of feel felt that as soon as we delved into the relationship aspect, it just got boring. Okay. Yeah, but I it, think it's, it's more of a personal taste thing. And that and that, and that is a, and that could be a personal taste thing. But at this at, at the same time, there's nothing going on in the relationship itself to mm. actually make that section of the book more interesting. I think it sort of loses its way. I mean, mm. it's sort of you have the murder. Or the accident, you know, the manslaughter, and it sort of looks like it's going to be, it's going to relate to that in some way, and sort of explain the world using that as a concept. But then, gets completely ignored, <laughs> except for Russia's obsessiveness with it, and then becomes, you know, like a soap opera. And if you're starting off with something quite strong and dramatic, like the robbery slash manslaughter slash murder, you've already got a promise there that something's got to be dealt with, because and that's always going to be quite dramatic. Hmm. And when it's not carried through to the extent that it is in the book, it that's when you start to go, get all well, the books meandering. Yeah, because so it's more it's more a case of this the, the setup is promising this, um, then you've got to keep that momentum going even with the relationship stuff. The murder doesn't occur until about seventy pages into the book, hmm. so it actually doesn't start with the murder at all. No, it starts with the right, which is it another with the right, but it's that, that, that actually another does big... continue through. I mean, of it, Sol gets, you know, obviously injured during one of the riots, you get... That's a way later. Mm. Yeah, but the, the riots do... I mean, part of why Andy has... You know, part of, part of the stress that's being put on the relationship between Andy and Shirl mm. is that Andy is constantly being put on riot duty yeah. as, um, you know, as the resources deplete more and more and things are being cut off and as the heat yeah. continues to rise. So, so uh, once again, it's, it's starting with... Um, with showing you the social pressures of the world, mm. and that does actually continue through. What um what I actually would have liked was I actually think Billy's story mm. becomes more interesting once he's actually um, committed the crime and has fled, mm. and he ends up in the in the shipyards. Mm. And he meets the zealot. Meets meets the the zealot who believes that the world is going to end on uh, December thirty first at midnight. Mm. Um, you know, once once the starts to starts to get involved in that story. I actually felt that his story was kind of more interesting and I wanted to go back mm. to him because it, his story was where I was learning more about the world. Mm. And I do have to say, whilst I did feel that it meandered a bit in the middle, I thought it actually ended quite strongly. As far as the personal drama goes, mm. I thought the conclusion to the book was actually quite 
quite powerful and did did bring it all together in the end. I, I liked uh, when they brought uh, Peter the Zealot back at the end too. Yeah, it was a nice yeah, little touch. Yeah, and I really, I must admit, I felt there's a um, a scene where some people move into the apartment that uh, Andy and Cheryl uh, living in. I really felt for them when that happened. That was just uh, yes, I've just got a horrible word. I've got something to say about that scene. It's interesting while Andy and Soul are living there. There's two people that that's that's fine, but uh, as soon as Soul dies, there's two people still living there. Yeah. Apparently, Cheryl yeah. doesn't count as a person. No. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, it's a difficult to talk about this book without making the obvious comparisons to the movie. The first thing that I noticed, you know, upon completing the book, was that um, my two favourite scenes from the film actually aren't in the book at all which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, the book ends very differently to the movie. The movie obviously has its classic, um, you know, sci-fi shock ending of uh, Charlton Heston running around screaming Soylent Green is people. Uh, I saw the film uh, like many moons ago before I read the book. I mean, like you, I hadn't read the book before. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny, actually, because while I was reading the book, that was I was basically waiting for that plot to occur. So the the fact yeah. that the Soylent Green is actually made out of people mm. and not out of the plankton, whereas that that doesn't happen in the book at all. But no. it, it actually is plankton, yeah. um, and, and, and away it goes. Yeah. So well, you don't have Soylent soy, soy, soy and lentils, yeah. 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 which well, I thought was kind of interesting reading the book because yeah. it never occurred to me. Before. Yeah, well, well, then you get the you get the later later on in the book you get the new one that says like a new variant yeah. made out of plankton. Yeah. Um, so it's it it was quite interesting because I was waiting for the I was waiting that's what I was waiting for when I was reading the book was. To get for that conspiracy to start up, mm. I wanted I wanted to have the investigation, and mm. and Billy Chun actually I ended up doing them a favor and all that sort of stuff. So I guess that's why I didn't really I didn't really get into the book all that much because I kept expecting something else to happen. So it's my right. my own fault really. Mm. Um, so I can't really fault the book for that. It's just what I was expecting. But the movie itself, of course, you've got the classic end sequence where he's getting mm. you know carried off and you know, it's just it's, it's all the greatest people. But there's one of the weird things about the film though is that like you said, I mean I totally agree with your world building thing in the book yeah but the film it's funny it's like it has that magnificent opening montage yeah. that shows basically what's happened to get us to this point and sets it in 2026 or something so it obviously moves away from 909 but then strangely enough new york is the most emptiest most overpopulated city i've ever seen so it says it's just you know 35 million people in new york alone and yet whenever you see an outside scene well, 40 million in the film yeah so it does keep the bits where he walks over people walking down the stairs which is awesome yeah. but then you get outside and there's no one around yeah, but that's, 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 that's how that comes to the budget of the film it wasn't exactly have some more people budget, there well they could just move the extras from the indoors to the outdoor that's right um but there are a couple of sequences like that in the book where he walks out on the street and there's no one around in this vastly overpopulated because it's the sweltering but heat the sweltering heat has kept people yeah. away yeah. or the rain keeps people away or the snow later on totally cool with that but then right. the scenes where he's outside in the dark it's light time it's nice and cool oh. There's no one there. No well, then they, one. Then they couldn't have had a gunfire. <laughs> That's um, terrible. It really annoyed me. <laughs> for me, though, the the absolute mm. best scene in the film, the film, the scene that really makes this a standout movie for me is actually Soul's death. Soul, Soul's death. Um, first of all, brilliantly depicted by Edward G. Robinson in his final role. Mm. For me, that it's just uh, an amazing sequence. And um, look, Soul's death in the book is actually quite. You know, quite moving. Um, you reckon actually that was a non-event? Yeah, it was quite sudden, which is yeah. part of the point. But that's the point. Yeah, that makes it. Yeah, and and, and I guess the moving part then comes 
well, Shirl's reaction to that. Yeah, it's more Shirl. And then what happens with Sol's death, and then the people moving in. So, so it's still it's still a a, a pivotal moment uh, in the book, Mm. but it didn't have quite the impact that the that the sequence in the film has. Mm. Um, Edward G. Robinson was actually um, dying of cancer. Mm. He actually died a few weeks after completing that scene. But he actually he and Charlton Heston really good were really good friends. But he didn't tell Charlton Heston that he was dying of cancer until the day they were shooting that sequence. So Charlton Heston's reaction to him dying in the film is actually quite legit. Because Charlton Heston's performance, let's face it, is not that good. <laughs> until that scene. Yeah. Well, even but, that scene, I, I wouldn't look even Char- at 10 Charlton points. Heston, Charlton Heston is awesome, but he's not exactly the greatest actor in the world. Charlton Heston has about three expressions <laughs> on his face. Yeah, but he's cool. That's he's got more a... than Catherine Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen Short, sorry. Yeah. For a change this time around, because it's such an old film, I've, it's actually, I read the book before I saw the film. Oh, cool. But having said that, I still knew the spoiler. I mean, everybody knows the spoiler in Silent Green. It's mm. it's like a meme now, Silent Green is people. So, I like like David said, I was reading the book, waiting for this to happen the whole time. But um, managed to put it aside and get into the book. But I, I, an interesting comparison between the book, the book, for me, it's far more outstanding than the film. Didn't like the film much at all. But uh, the in the film, the women are treated quite badly. The book, not much better, but there's, they talk more about women's issues and they actually there's a whole thing about birth control and whatnot, whereas in the film, they're just furniture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically just living, living prostitutes. But that's all part of the, that's yeah. part of the world itself. That's got a comment on... No, 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 that's right, but it's not so prevalent in the book. I mean, in the book, I mean, Cheryl's quite a strong character, and you've got that that neighbour that just kicks butt. You know, yes. Cheryl's Shirl, yes. about to be attacked by the by Big Mike's sister. That The woman just punches her out. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, she, she takes out the, the guys that try to steal their water at one point as well. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Jerry Care. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's interesting, and in the... For me, the book, even though it was written a decade or so before the film came out, seemed much more modern than the film. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Mm. Actually, I, I actually quite like the casting in the film. I, like, like you, I'm actually not that yeah. big a fan of the really Well, if they were going to make the character in the film as Andy Rush and not Detective Thorne, yeah. then Charlton Heston would be a bad choice. But yeah. as Detective Thorne... He yeah. was fun. The completely yeah. different character. Heston could not have played Rush. No. It just wouldn't work. But I really love Cheryl's casting. Yeah. Lee, Lee Taylor Young, I think is physically exactly how I pictured Cheryl looking. Mm. So Tad, is it, Tad was quite different. Yeah, Tad was very different. Chuck, very different. Chuck Connors is not how I mentioned Tad at all. Well, you mean the big black guy? Yeah. I, was, I was waiting for Carl Weathers. I was like, come on, Carl! If it was made today, uh, if it was made about six months ago, they would have had Michael Clark Duncan. Yeah. So, uh, what are your ratings, guys? Let's start with Luke, because he's always a good one to start with. This isn't a terrible book by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not, for me, it's not, it's a little dramatically unsatisfying, much like the film. There are bits and pieces I like about the book, and there are bits and pieces I like about the film. Um, but really, as taken a whole, I'm just not that interested. Um, I give this, at best, two looks. David? I'm in total agreement with everything you said. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a two look, at best. Mm. Um, world building, brilliant. Mm. Everything else, I just. I was completely bored out of my head. And that mm. goes for the film and the book. Crystal? Mm. Oh, I completely disagree. Uh, I give the book. I, I basically I always base my Luke's my Luke ratings on the on my enjoyment of the, and um, I give this book four and a half. 
Luke's because I really enjoyed it. I really got right into it. However, I'd give the film maybe one Luke. Wow. Ooh, and, I'd, and I'd give Charlton Heston's performance half a Luke. <laughs> <laughs> Not but Charlton it, Heston fans in the NC. But it would G. Robinson's performance five Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have to give him five But he's good in everything. That's true. Well, I'm going to be basically about halfway between where you guys are at because, um, yeah, I don't think it's a perfect book, but I absolutely love the world building and um, I'm going to give this, the book uh, three looks uh, and I'm going to give the four, the film four looks because I'm a big fan. Awesome. Well, there you go. Uh, uh, thanks for that pick, Richo. No problem. Good stuff. So we'll continue the theme of, uh, of, the, of the crew picking their own books for the Dust Jacket segments. Uh, after a short break, uh, our next Dust Jacket will actually be uh, a special devoted to short stories and uh, their importance in literature and our favourite short stories. Stay tuned. <laughs> Don't go away. Nerd Culture Podcast, it's coming right the back. Punto com. <laughs> So continuing on from last episode, we're going to have part two of our follow-up with the DC's New 52 One Year Later review. Uh, so last episode we had our standouts and our special mentions. We started positive. Now unfortunately we're going to hit the negatives and have our bottom of the barrel. The absolute worst of the worst. And, I've got my uh, scraper out and I'm ready to go. That's good stuff. And, uh, and also our overview of the, of the whole year. So to start us off with uh, our bottom of the barrels, we'll have we'll start off with Luke again. Cool. With Catwoman. Yeah, really, just what do you say about this comic? Um, Catwoman, one of the more interesting characters in the DCU because she straddles that fine line between um, hero and villain. Just appallingly treated. It's become the book that no one really wants Catwoman to be, a gratuitous TNA book that is trying to be clever and trying to be psychological in the way in the way that she's dealing with her own past, but very sloppily handled. I mean, that first issue alone, where you know there were gratuitous backside shots and her top is open at one point, and you know the caption actually specifically makes mention to her top being open. There is Red Hood and there is Voodoo, and this is five steps below that. Next, we'll have Richo with Batman: The Dark Knight. Overall, I think with uh, this new Fifty Two. The Bat books have actually been the standouts. Like, almost across the board, the Bat books have been fantastic. With the exception, or at least of a, of a strong quality, with a few exceptions, Detective, obviously Catwoman, but worst of all, has to be Batman the Dark Knight. Every issue is basically like a poorly written version of the Scott Snyder Batman stories. It's like, what if, what if those stories were done, but were done really badly? And this... This book is offering absolutely nothing new and nothing really overly interesting to the characters or to the mythos. It also doesn't help that I'm just not a fan of David Finch's artwork in any way. I, I don't understand his monumental popularity. Yeah, for, for, for a franchise that's doing so well, to have a book like this, which is doing nothing, is really, really unfortunate. Um, on a positive note, um, David Finch has left the book. And Ethan Van Skyver is the new artist, so at least the artwork will step up a notch or two. That doesn't help For the... if the story's still yeah. terrible. Uh, so next up is me with Hawk and Dove. Now you're going to notice a, uh, a running theme with my bottom of the barrels. Hawk and Dove uh, is penciled by Rob Liefeld, uh, but thankfully written by somebody else, Sterling Gates. Uh, but still that doesn't help. Um, it's it's awful. At number one was was awful, and it's and uh, at least it's accomplished something. It's accomplished staying awful. 
it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's just, consistent. It's consistently crap. It's it, I just I I can't describe it any better than that. It's just it's poor story, shockingly bad artwork. And look, I don't care what anybody says. I mean, I've I've got nothing against Life Out as a person. I'm sure he's a lovely man, but his artwork is crap. Let's just be honest here. It's terrible. I just can't get past it. It's just it's it's just boring, boring stuff. On a positive note, everybody thought that because the book got cancelled after six issues. So next up, uh, Luke with Justice League. Now this is a title that I didn't cancel after issue one because I'm a big Justice League fan. However, I have certain preconceptions about what you know a Justice League title should entail. It be big, over the top um, adventures between you know some of the some of the best characters in the DCU, and those adventures should take ideally no more than four issues or six, depending on the nature of the story. And the nature of the story should be epic in scope. Not six issues of the Justice League fighting amongst each other, and then fighting Darkseid. And then if you're going to introduce a new villain, make him absolutely fascinating and interesting, plus make him a viable, credible threat for the seven most powerful members of the superhero community on Earth. Also, don't get Jim Lee to draw the book. Oh, Ooh. big call. I mean, you're totally right. This is meant to be the flagship title. Mm. I mean, it's the one that they, they put it all in. It's Jeff Johns, Jim Lee. Every page is a splash page for mm. this stuff. It's meant to be huge, epic. Mm. And it just drags on. Mm. It's, it's 12 issues to tell a four or five issue story. It's but just... if, if this is a flagship book, then the flagship book should be leading the way and actually setting the course for the stor- future stories. Yeah. In no way. Is this setting the course no. for the rest of the DCU? You can read every other... You, the, whole, the whole point of this was meant to be you read all the ones you want, but Justice League is the absolute must you must read if you yeah, want to yeah. you know, get caught up on the DCU. It hasn't been that way so far. No, And I'm a big Jeff Johns fan. I mean, I, I mean mm. obviously Green Lantern was one of my standouts. Mm. But this has got to be some of the worst dialogue I've ever read. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's, really? a, that's a, a fair comment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely yeah. worse books out there mm. in the world in, on, on, the, on the racks. Mm. But this should have been magnificent. Yeah. yeah. And it's not. Mm. <laughs> I'm putting it bluntly. Uh, next up, Richo, with one of Luke's favourites, Red Hood and the Outlaws. <laughs> Look, I... Honestly, I don't even know why this book exists. It's... it's There's just nothing to this book at all that is in any way interesting... Um, the storytelling is awful. The characterization is worse. Um, I mean, especially with Starfire. I, I just do not recognize this version of Starfire at all. Mainly because she's just not a character. She's a, a, an opportunity for the other two members of the group to ogle her, and that's about it. Look, uh, the artwork um, has been very nice. I think Kenneth Rockefort's a, a beautiful artist. But the stories that Scott Lobdell has delivered are just abysmal. This is the worst team book that uh, DC has out there right now. So next up was me with Grifter. So like I said, a bit of a theme happening here. Grifter uh, was one of those where the first issue was, you know, it was, it was okay. It was alright. It was, you know, it was, it passed the time. It wasn't anything outstanding. I didn't think I'd continue on, and I didn't. Uh, but then, uh, and but one of the one of the good things about it was that, you know, Grifter is an interesting-looking character and the artwork was quite nice. That, unfortunately, didn't continue because uh, the artist was replaced by Rob Liefeld, um, who is actually... and is also drawing... Uh, he's also uh, writing the book. Um, and that's just a, that's just the death now, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, as, as bad as Liefeld's art is, in my opinion, his writing is actually worse, if that's possible. 
the Lifeblood's had a couple of interesting things to say about Grifter, um, in that what he wanted to do was stopped by DC Editorial. We'll get it, we'll get into DC Editorial a bit later with our overview, because um, it's been a bit of a running theme. And I will admit that some of the plans that he, that he did have sounded kind of interesting, um, and the ones that were stopped, but still not interesting enough to, to elevate this from bottom of the barrel. I mean, it's, I mean, his artwork alone is enough to do that. So, you know, they, I, that's all I can say, really. It's, it's bottom of the barrel because Life Out did it. Back to Luke for his final voodoo. A lot of the comments that I'm going to make about voodoo uh, relate to Red Hood and Catalan, which is the sort of the gratuitous nature. One of the big problems with this is the attempt to justify justify it because of the character's profession. Um, if you're going to if you're going to do that, fine, but actually go the whole hog and work it into her character to make her a fully fleshed three dimensional character, so we can see her flaws and her strengths and things like and things along that nature. That's really the big problem. That they decided, oh no, we need to have all this, so we've got to try and justify that she's a stripper. But in no way do they attempt to sort of analyse that and make her an interesting character, even from that, even from that attempt to justify herself. Um, the other big, the big problem, I think, and this also gets to a problem that Grifter has, which is that the Wildstorm characters haven't actually been an, an easy fit into the DCU. Um, and I think this is what the, actually the example where it, where it has worked the least. Um, and I'm not blaming... Voodoo is a character. I'm blaming Ron Mars, and yeah. I forget the artist's name. Although I don't think Ron Mars is that was actually writing it at the very end either. No, um, he he yeah. quit after a few issues and got replaced. Mm. But you know, it seems it, to be a running theme. Yes, it does. It, and that's the thing about this. These are all great characters. It's bad creative teams that have ruined these books. I actually don't even kind of describe him. Think Voodoo is even a great character. Couldn't she, stand her in Wildcats. Mm. Can't stand her now. But I do disagree about the art. I actually think the art is mm. excellent. I don't, I don't mean the fact that you know it's all DNA. Yeah, yeah. I mean I the concept, mm. but I just think the actual artist himself mm. is, is is really good. But you're right, the book sucks. Mm. Okay, so back to Richo for Superman. Uh, once again, like Justice League, the Superman book hasn't actually been um, the worst book on the market or any by any stretch of the imagination. And the reason I put it in bottom of the barrel is not because of the creative teams that have worked on it but more for the editorial decision-making involved in the title. This is Superman. This is your number one flagship character, and you have no idea, as an editorial team, what it is you're actually doing with him. You've got Grant Morrison doing, you know, Superman's history in action comics, and I've got no problem with that, you know. Um, it's certainly been probably the better of the two books, whilst not brilliant by any stretch of the imagination and certainly not what I would expect from Grant Morrison doing Superman based on, you know, all-star Superman and everything. But but I just think, why is Superman not up there with Batman and Justice League and Wonder Woman as just flagship titles? This is the book that you should be banking your top creative teams on because it's your top character. And, you know, they gave us George Perez and then he left. Then I think we had some fill-in issues, and now mm. Scott Lobdell's come onto it. We had Keith Giffen writing it at one point. You mm. know, I mean, the book's just been a mess. Now, surely, at the beginning of all of this, somebody would have sat down and said, Superman's our number one character. You know, He's the most recognisable superhero in the world. Here is our depiction of the character. Here's what he's going to represent to the New 52. Now let's do that. Mm. And instead, they've just... That's like the book is just 
being yeah. going mm. off in all these weird directions and it's not achieving anything. Yeah. And so it, it, it's coming to the bottom of the barrel and I'm not insulting the creative teams that have worked on it, but I just wish they did something special with the book and made it stand out. In George Burroughs' defence, he actually said one of the reasons why he left the book was because he actually didn't have a handle on the new Superman. Yeah. In that it, it seemed to be a bit unrecognisable. They were trying to make him a bit more tougher... At the same time, wanted to keep the sort of the truth just in the American way, and and I agree. I think that's that's really been one of the big problems. Superman as a character is not actually very well defined. Yeah, yeah. What he actually said was that Grant Morrison was doing his stuff mm. and wasn't being forthcoming on what, and letting know because he's doing the past stuff mm. and wouldn't wasn't yeah. being forthcoming to say well what he was going to be doing, what his plans mm. were, so that they could then do what was, yeah. what was the current stuff. Mm. And so, so Superman for me is uh, is the perfect example of just how the editorial is getting it wrong. Yeah. I mean, you talk, I mean, they should have had right. the Superman Bible. This is exactly what is, what's going on. I mean, what, yeah. what, what, what are George Perez's best quotes, I think, was is this, they couldn't even tell me whether Martha and Jonathan were alive or not. Yeah. And, so that, and, it's, and that's, that's, that's vital. That is exactly the point. Yeah. Okay, so we'll finish up with me on Deathstroke. Um, so, yeah. Hey, who works on Deathstroke again? The, uh, the the Trinity of Life Out titles. It's uh, actually no, I didn't even include. I, I, we're only we're only allowed to have. I actually, I said we were only allowed to have three each. So if I was going to complete it, it would have been uh, Savage Hawkman. So see, yeah, they, that, they, that almost made yeah, it onto my list as well. The so. complete the uh, Life Out sort of collection there. So Deathstroke, yes, of course, is being uh, penciled and uh, by Rob Liefeld. The problem with Deathstroke is is uh, the, the number one. Um, I didn't have a problem with it. It was you know it was it passed the time. It wasn't good uh where the rest of the crew seemed to did really dislike it because it was basically nothing and, you know, and uh and the problem is it just didn't get any better from that it just continued to be nothing and uh it's just it's just a real shame um it was i thought it was a good idea to have to for a villain to have his own title and sort of see it from the villain's point and i thought their strike would be a good chance for that and it just wasn't so that's enough of the negativity. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. But we had to, I mean, we have to mention it, of course. So um, that gets us into our uh, overview. So we've already mentioned uh, the editorials. Uh, uh, we'll sort of go through the history of the year, sort of, sort of, sort of briefly. So you had uh, your first wave sort of titles, those fifty-two that we that we reviewed. Um, then you had uh, a bunch of titles that were cancelled after eight issues, that, um, and then were replaced by the second wave. Uh, so the so the titles that were, have been have been cancelled are Mister Terrific, Static Shock, Hawk and Dove, Omac, Black Hawks, and Men of War. Now, Men of War is actually an interesting one because in the, in the second wave they actually sort of reinvented it um, as GI Combat. Uh, so then in the second wave uh, they uh, they brought in a, a bunch of titles, um, but even now some more titles have actually been cancelled after the twelfth issue. Uh, they were Justice League International. Captain Adam, Resurrection, Resurrection Man, which is a shame, mm. and Voodoo, thankfully. Um, so uh, those is, those uh, titles will be finished up with the zero issues. Um, so the zero issues were a, a bit of an interesting concept. I thought I found it quite jarring as they like they've got the, these these titles and they have the zero issue, which is you know going to be their the character's origins. But in every one that I read, all I could think was, well, why don't you just put this into the actual comic? Yeah. Mm. Why did it have to be a separate issue? Mm. It's this should have we should have already know this information. And in a lot of cases, it didn't really tell you anything that you didn't already know. The Batman ones, it was just a, just a fill in the blanks for Bruce Wayne's gap year, effectively. 
um, with not really... I mean, this might play out later on in some of the titles, but not really a, a strong sense of um, this having any deep, lasting impact, except for now we know definitively who killed Bruce's parents. Yeah. I think the worst example, actually, is not because it was a bad issue, but um, but it just it just didn't really make much sense, was Batwing. So Batwing actually took the time to tell you his origin mm. as a child soldier in the actual titles. Mm. And then you get this Zero issue, which then deals with him as... As, you know, an older an older man between between the child hot soldier days and then when Batman gives him the suit mm. and it's just mm. I just didn't need to know mm. I just didn't care I mean you've actually already had it in the Batman the Batwing title where mm. Bruce the scene where Bruce gives him the suit and said mm. here you go you'll be my representative in Africa he did, just this little bit in between you just you just didn't need to know mm. the success of the Zero issues actually lies in financially mm. yeah like the uh, outside of uh, Avengers versus X-Men mm. which I think took the top two positions for the month then the next 12 or 13 issues are all DC Zero issues and has increased their market share to about six points above Marvel's for the month so everybody loves the Zero issue clearly the Zero issues worked in that in Mm. that regard and perhaps even I suppose even as a potential jumping on point for readers as well well for a couple Um, of titles it was a jumping on point I mean they started mm. uh, Sword and Sorcery which is the uh, reintroduction of Amethyst um, into the universe using her Zero issue Um, so I mean in some cases it worked and they had an awesome selection of covers so all the covers had the similar sort of theme and were all great so I mean that that worked as well but I just think as a concept I just creatively I just don't think it really worked all that well but obviously like I said huge financial success yeah and that's the general theme of New 52 in general it's creatively very hit and miss Mm. I mean you've got your, your top runs that we mentioned you've got your bottom ones that we mentioned in our opinions of course then you got you just got your standalone middle of the road type stuff. So creative, I think it's like I said, it's very it's very hit and miss, and it's a lot of it can be discarded as as just filling in the blanks, filling in the numbers. But financially, and its importance to the industry has been massive. One of the things that I like from a creative perspective, and this is something we actually mentioned when we did the wrap up last year, um, DC has been very good at actually trying to keep a diversity in their line and they're doing a pretty decent job of at least trying to draw attention to some of their lesser known characters and obviously in the case of things like Animal Man and Swamp Thing being very successful and I hope that they continue to do that and that they don't they don't do basically what looks to me like Marvel is doing at the moment with Marvel now which is actually um, just bringing all of their titles under the you know the banner franchises I think two things have happened here and one is that those editorial problems are actually becoming very noticeable in in some of the books themselves. Mm. Like you're actually seeing those issues reflected um, in on the page, and also just the sheer number of creative changes that are occurring. I mean, we're, for almost every book we talked about, we were mentioning that one creator is gone and they've moved on to another book, and new creators are coming on, and it, it doesn't seem like outside of a few key books, it doesn't seem like a lot of the creators are staying around for a long time. Mm. Um, and I hope that 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 will change. I'm hoping that we'll actually get a little bit more stability mm. um, in the line as well. So there you have it, our uh, one year roundup of uh, the new Fifty Two. Overall, it's been a success. I, I agree with that. Overall, I think, it has been a success. Yeah. So we'll um, very much love to hear your opinions. What do you think? As you've just 
Just had ours. Let us know what you think. Are you still reading the ones that you read as uh, from number one? Have you gone onto onto new books? Has uh, the awesomeness of Batman and Animal Man drawn you in? Because they that's should. That's one thing. Yeah. That's, so uh, um, let us know. Really much. Uh, really love to hear your opinions. So, uh, that's it from us. Moving on to part two of our Armageddon Expo interviews. Uh, and just like the first batch of interviews, uh, I just have to apologise for the quality. Uh, of the sound in some in some places, um, there's there was quite a bit of background noise getting the interviews at actually you know on the floor at Armageddon Expo, so couldn't be helped unfortunately. But uh, hopefully it's not too bad. And uh, thanks for Paul for suggesting that we have our interview outside. That was really cool. Um, except for when the sun was just in our faces, <laughs> it was pretty bad. But it was good to get some fresh air. So uh, here we go with the uh, part two of the Armageddon Expo interviews. Hi, this is David. I'm here with Frank Candeloro. Is, uh, is, we're big, big, big fans of Frank's work at uh, NCP, and I'm so excited to be able to actually talk to him here at Armageddon Expo. Hello. How are you doing, man? <laughs> Pretty good, thank you for Pretty asking. Good. Your, uh, your book came in yesterday, thank God. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, so <laughs> close. I thought for sure that I wouldn't get it in. Yeah, and it's got, <laughs> got some cool quotes in it as well. Yeah, um, yeah it's uh, Blood Across Broadway. I've got a few reviewer quotes in there. I've also got a few re- reviewer quotes for my newest book, Behind the Crooked Cross, yep. which I'll probably print on the second second edition. Yep. So, you know, just as a, you know, a testimonial to how brilliant I am. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and it's true. Um, I, 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 like I said, I'm a huge fan of your work. Um, uh, Behind the Crooked Cross, I think, is your best work so far. Oh, thank you. And uh, it is, it's, it's really moving. Um, and uh, I just really love the fact that it doesn't take its subject matter for granted. It's just, it's... Mm. It's just it's true to life, and uh, it, you know, it really affects you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a you know, it was a it was a bit of a challenge for me because it's obviously very different from my books, and it's dealing with a very heavy s- subject matter. And so, yeah. you know, I tried to make it as, as tasteful as I possibly as I possibly could, considering yeah. that you know, obviously, I wasn't in the war, and I never knew anyone that was in the war. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. No, the, the respect definitely comes across. Mm. Um, all right, well, let's uh, let's get to the standard interview questions. Awesome. First comic given to you. Wow, that that has that takes me back a bit, actually. Um, I actually the first comic that I remember was uh, an old Spider-Man comic from uh, the, the late 1980s. It had a uh, it had cloak and dagger in it, and cool. it also had uh, Spider-Man and Black Cat. I don't actually remember too much about it, but all I remember is that one last panel where I think I think Spider-Man gets beaten up and Spider-Man the typical comic like dramatic ellipse is like no in, o- in order for us to beat this guy we have to go to the one the cloak and dagger continue next <laughs> that's the one thing that's seared into my memory and that's um, cool yeah, so I've got a bit of a soft spot for Cloak and Dagger, even though I've never actually read any. Oh, Cloak I'm a huge Dagger. fan of Cloak and Dagger. They just yeah. did, they recently did a reprint of the, some of their early established print mm. stuff. Uh, first comic you bought with your own money? Um, I think it might have been. I think it might have been an issue of Batman. I think it was. Um, I think it was around the Nightfall era. Like I was a bit too young to understand it. I sort of knew Bane from. Uh, like the animated series at the time, he I think he only appeared in one episode, yeah. but he sort of really stood out. Yeah. So I think that was the one comic. So, so that's, that's based. That's two superhero comics. Yeah. So Spider-Man and Batman. What actually? What sort of draw you to the to, to, to the sort of the genre of your own work? Because um, since about 2003, I've uh, I've studied films and I've sort of made films, and so I've been a real film buff. Okay. And um, a lot of them are gangster and crime books, but I also like a lot of horror. 
Okay. And um, horror was something that really, really inspired me, particularly the, the 1920s and 30s sort of horror, the German Expressionist kind of stuff. Excellent. And so um, after I did the webcomic and when I was starting to take publishing my own book seriously, I was trying to figure out, you know, what would be a good idea. And I remembered an idea for an old animated film I had, which was The Testament of Dr. Zeitpunkt. And it was, you know, very Metropolis inspired, very yeah. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And yeah, with that book, I ended up changing my style. Because with White Wolf, as yep. you can see, they're very yeah, sort of curved. Yeah, it's sort of cartoony. Edges, it's yep. very sort of um, Bob Kane, uh, uh, Chester Gould sort of influence. But with uh, The Testament of Dr. Zeitpunkt, it was very... Um, I changed the style a bit. Like, I made yep. it sort of cubist. I made the edges more angular and squared. And I was only going to do it for that book. But um, when people saw it, they were really responding to it in yep. a way that they didn't do it before. And so I thought, well, I'd be a bit stupid not to keep using it. And... Yep. And that's what kept, and that's what sort of influenced me to make more and more horror comics because that was because the horror genre is really the best kind of genre for this kind of art style to work in. Yeah, mm. it's a it's an excellent art style. It's a real, it's, it's very eye catching, and I also I mean I really love the fact that um, so Cabinet of Dr Caligari's I mean if if, you, if if any of your audience has ever seen it it's got really weird camera angles, lots of lots of uh, sort of uh, straight lines, weird corners, yeah. you know, and your art style just fits that perfectly thank you yeah for the story it's it's, it's really good it's, it's it's a unique style I, I can't think of anybody i know that that has sort of the, a similar sort of style it's it's basically a cross between um like classic golden age 40s art and german expressionism if i was gonna if i was gonna describe it as that and a little bit of frank miller thrown in for good measure <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that at least you know when he was good yeah um, back in the day uh artists you admire um, well, I guess that's a good segue into anything. <laughs> Frank Miller yep. was um, one guy that I remind. The first comic that I read, which got me into the like reading comics seriously, was uh, The Dark Knight Returns. Mm. Obviously, because it was dramatically different to the Batman that I that I grew up with, and so and what stood out for his art was at the time my knowledge of comics was pretty limited I thought they all looked the same it was the regular kind of superhero art but with Frank Miller like it was like silhouettes it was scratchy lines it made me realise that no you could do anything with comics it's a storytelling medium so that's one artist that I admire uh, there's also another artist that um, I actually wasn't aware of until a fellow comic guy um, Matt Emery who yeah. does the Zumo show and was in Big Ass this year he said that he got a Rory Hayes feel to it, and I had no idea who that was until I looked it up. And yeah, I, I could sort of see it because it's really nightmarish, sort of freaky, like a lot of um, a lot of really bold outlines and, and and stuff like that. And um, I think he was like a protege of Robert Crumb actually, which was yeah. interesting. Um, if you're going to be a protege of anybody, then uh, yeah, that would be that, awesome. That's pretty so, good. So. Like, he said that last year, and since then, like, I've sort of been a little influenced by him, sort of incorporating more and more of that kind of style into it, so, like, I mean, to be honest, I'm actually much more of a film animation yep. kind of person than, than comics. Like, I do read a lot of comics, but, you know, most yep. it's mostly the old, sort of, um, classic artists like Chester Gould and Will Eisner and Jack Kirby that in, that inspire this, so, yep. yeah. Well, who are the filmmakers that inspire Uh... Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese. Um, going to horror, you can't go past Robert Wien and Fritz Lang, the masters, the geniuses. Um, another one, James Whale, who did uh, Frankenstein. Because, um, you know, back then, um, making films wasn't seen as an art form, it was an entertainment, it was a business yeah. to an extent. But he was, the, he was one that really put himself 
in, into into his comics is he was an openly gay director, yeah. and he directed Bride of Frankenstein, which was about you know, which is genius. Finding the yeah, I yeah. love that film. One yeah. of the best sequels ever. Um, yeah. It's about finding Frankenstein a mate, and they're sort of not compatible together. So I have to wonder if there was yeah. some liminal sort of thing going on, and yeah, so that's one of them. Um, Favorite fan moment. I think I'm going to have to say when uh, Brian Michael Bendis bought one of my books. Nice. Yeah. Um, and All-Star Comics. Yeah, like, um, I was actually on the train when that happened, and yeah. I was checking my messages, and um, I was scrolling down on my Facebook, and one of my friends said, oh, God, you know, someone get Frank Estrich, he's faint, and I'm like, what is he talking about? And I'm scrolling up, and I see Mitch Davis, Davies, the great owner of that store. Yeah going, oh, I just wanted to let you know that Bender's book, Blow Cross Broadway, so then I'm, I'm thinking, oh, so that must be it, because Bender's book, and then I did a double, double take, I was like, yeah. wait, what? That's and, awesome. Oh, man. And I ended up meeting him at, at Supernova, and he was such a nice guy, such yeah. a really friendly guy, he congratulated me on doing good work, and that's man, brilliant. When, when I got home, I did the best night's worth of comic work, because <laughs> I was so inspired, so that yeah. would have to be the biggest. Yeah. yeah. Bender's is great, we interviewed him for the show, I guess that sort of segues into, have you ever been starstruck? I was a little starstruck a few years ago when I met uh, Bruce Tim with nice. the Batman the Animated Series and, you know, I was really flustered, like, signing. Because um, he had a... Uh, it was actually here at Armageddon. He had a new um, animated film. I think it was Superman Doomsday. And um, I was sort of mumbling. I'm like, oh, boy, boy, a cool Superman movie. And he's like, oh, what did you think of it? I'm like, yeah, I liked it. It was, it was good. You used the, the, the mullet Superman. That was good. And I'm like, why did I just mention that? Why did I mention the damn mullet? <laughs> At least, like, you didn't, at least you didn't mention the yeah. uh, the blue and white two Superman, the electric Superman. Oh my Superman. god, yeah. That's, they're far worse. Yeah. But no, he was a very nice guy and I was happy to meet him. But yeah, I get starstruck very easily. Uh, what's your favourite uh, favorite part about creating comics? Um, it's actually printing them out and actually having them in your hands. Because when you, when you do this process, it's... Um, like by nature, making comics is a very lonely, sort of isolated sort of business. Especially if you, you know, obviously, because I'm doing everything, I'm writing and illustrating them, so it can be a bit hard. And sometimes you do question why you do this, but then when you actually get it printed out and you hold it in your hands, you actually, you actually see it. You turn the pages. It's such a great feeling. You realize, you know what? No, I have accomplished something. Yeah. I'm actually getting my books out. So that is the one thing that just keeps me going. And I think, I think for a lot of people that print out their books, that's what keeps them going. Because I love digital comics, and I have no problem with it, but. For me, nothing will beat print. Awesome. Mm. All right, well, we'll finish up there. The wrestling's about to start, so... Um, oh, um, it's, goody. <laughs> it's, been, uh, it's been great talking to you, Frank, and good luck with the show. Thank you very much, Thank man. you very much. Cheers. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Mr. Paul Bedford, the... Uh, Mr.? Jeez. Ah, oh, well, <laughs> the gentleman, Mr. Paul Bedford. <laughs> gentleman. That's, that's even... Yeah, that's that's not insulting, is it? No, no, no. no I, I just don't think I've deserved gentleman. No? No, not by any means. Actually... Thug. Uh, <laughs> Neanderthal, I think, are more, uh, more just, suitable. No, anyway. the, the very creative Mr. Paul Bedford, oh, uh, thank you, the, uh, the creator of The List. Yes. Um, and it's an absolutely great, great comic. Oh, um, thank you, out, man. It's out in trade now. Yes, finally. Um, and uh, it's it's a must-buy, in my opinion. Oh, I'll you're a champion. Put it on your must-buy list. Lovely. Um, and excitingly enough, you're actually, uh, you've actually been optioned for a, a film, feature yes. film. Yeah, that's sort of come out of left field. I, I, um very excited and, and, and still... Still, uh, it's still sinking in. Um, the fact that you know I've got this self-published crazy little book. It basically is it's only covered sort of Melbourne, apart from you know the, the few sporadic uh, international sales. And here we go. We've had it um, optioned by 
uh, an Academy Award nominated uh, director. Are you not allowed to say the name? Uh, I won't. They don't really want me to yet until. Can you give a hint? For our, for our savvy audience, yes. What, what is a, a good hint that you can give that won't get you into trouble? 1998. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> That's the, okay. That's really exciting. So, I mean, yeah. I'm, I, I, I follow your tweets and um, so you're up to the... Poor bastard. To, <laughs> they're entertaining, let me tell you oh, that. Um, so you're up to uh, part, uh, the third act? Act three, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. I've actually... The guy that was in there now is one of the producers. Yep. Um, so I'm sort of waving the... Uh, Waving the screenplay under his nose. He doesn't want it till it's finished, but I just want to show him a bit of progress. Yeah. Uh, we're deep into Act 3. I'm utterly wrapped with it, Dave. It it's, sounds like it's really going. It's come along really, really well. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, I've got the source material. Um, and while I may have sacrificed some of the, the abstract feel of, of the graphic novel, um, I'm certainly up the stakes and uh, introduced a lot of characters and elements and scenes that weren't in the book but also seem to work. And it's also a lot more violent and nasty, so yeah. if you like that side of things... You did say that you changed a couple of elements. Hopefully you didn't change too much. No, I, I've I mean, really kept it as, at the forefront of my mind yeah. that even if a scene changes, it, yeah. it'll have the same uh, essence. purpose, essence, yeah. feel, and fucked upness. <laughs> So that's the four things I had to tick on each scene. But it, it that's is, actually your list. That is the list. Essence, that's the list list. Feel, fucked upness. Yeah, fucked up. <laughs> yep. Um, but it's coming very well. I hope to have the screenplay finished within a week or so because the, the producers want it by then. Mm-hmm. Start shopping. I'll start to read the first draft. Um, they'll get back to me with some feedback. Um, hopefully they don't hate it. And we... Uh, we go from there, but I'm, I'm very happy with it. From a personal note, uh, I love that statue that you've got, that you bring to every con. Yep. With the, you know, do not touch sign. Yep. When, when are you actually going to get that as released as, a, as an item? Well... After the film, most likely. After the film, yeah. I, I, I did um, ask Julian, the, the sculptor, about the possibility of um, having it replicated, and the costs involved are incredible. Like, yeah. unless you're a really hardcore fan of the list, I don't even want to pay 600 bucks for a model. Right. Um... It's mainly to do with the, the, the initial cast, yeah. and then the replication of it is also a very complex little uh, yeah. thing. But you know, I, I'd like to have it made up too. Won't be that one because I keep on breaking his knife. <laughs> Three times I've broken his knife off. Can you believe it? I'm going to drive out the Dalesford, have Julian fix it, bring it back. But did you no, not notice the do not touch though? Yeah, I should I should pay attention <laughs> myself. Yeah. You know, it, is, it is a cool little statue. Cheers, cheers. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, 40th, people... 40th birthday present for my lovely wife. Oh, people will be willing to pay. I mean, I, I just forked out $400 for a rogue statue. Oh, Jesus. So people will pay it. Um, and I've got, you got this, you just gave me this one. I'm really excited. The, the day I stopped. Um, tell me, Can you tell me a little bit about that? Cheers, David. Yeah, that's part one of a, of a collection I'm doing of, of short stories, which are lovely to write because you write them in one night and they're sort of done. I... Um, uh, you may have heard of the artist J. Mark Schmidt, who I did have. the Six Myths with, yeah, yeah. Six Myths and, with um, Jason Franks like and Egg, egg story. story. I love and, Egg Story, it's awesome. And, and Eating Steve. Steve. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I just sort of wrote it and I thought, J. Mark Schmidt, you know, when you're writing a, a script, you get a certain uh, artist in mind. And I sent it to him when J. Uh, Mark, he was, he was living in Japan at the time, and he was going through like an existential sort of crisis. And so I think he received the script at the right time. Mm. It wasn't um, indicated on my, uh, sorry, intentional on my part. He sort of read it and wrote back and said, yeah, look, I really like it. And then, funnily enough, six months later, I got to the post and he's hand-lettered, hand-drawn it with a, um, what they call it, tile-cut, tile-cut yeah. cover. And I'm like, wow. oh, it almost brought me to tears. I'm like, this is fucking beautiful. Yeah. You know, and it's, uh, it's basically the story about, the main theme is a, a guy is sick of his life. 
he's utterly done with it. Um, he's, he's a regular nine to five businessman, um, and he just literally stops, literally stops doing anything, eating, drinking, wow. um, and just uh, it, it's all about the reactions of the reactions it elicits from people around you when you stop living their idea of what life's meant to be. Yeah, it freaks them out. Yeah, yeah. which is obviously a theme for you. Yeah, 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 yeah pretty much. It's yeah, it's very um, living yeah, your life. Yeah, living life, and you yeah. know, and driving a forklift during the week. They're the two <laughs> living the dream, mate. I know you're awesome tat. What's that? Oh, cheers. That's um, I was at a photography exhibition, uh, and I noticed that the this quote uh, by um, by Jung, on, on, and it just sort of struck home with me, and I uh, I, I memorized it. And then I, of course, I forgot it because I destroyed my memory in the 90s. <laughs> um, and then I... Destroy, I yeah, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, a lot of bad stuff happened. No, but, um, and I, I looked up on the net and I printed it out and I had it on my, uh, on, on my um, uh, mantelpiece for about eight months. And then one day I said, I've got to get that. It just, uh, it just sort of sums up creativity and, and where a lot of creativity comes from. I mean, even though... This seem, all this stuff sort of seems glossy and, and fancy when you come across pod, uh, pop culture. Yeah. There's actually a lot of dark material, and dark material comes not from pe- where people think from the evil side. Yeah. It comes. It comes from uh, weaknesses, uh, self-doubt, insecurity, depression, all the all the negative forces on a life that can really, really debilita- debilitate someone, and that's. Yep. Like a lot of lists came from you know deeper, darker sort of thoughts and, and a lot of shit I went through personally. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so the the tattoo itself uh, really struck home. All yeah. right. And what is yeah. the actual quote? Uh, it says, in spite of its function as a reservoir for human darkness, or perhaps because of this, the shadow is the seat of creativity, which I just love. Yeah. You know, and that so directly relates. So for anybody for you know who anybody's silly enough not to have read the list yet. Yeah, silly. silly. Tell us a little bit about the list. All right, the list is uh, a psych thriller, uh, a little bit of mystery thrown in, and its basic premise is that an archangel has visited a typical suburban contemporary family, contemporary times, and delivered to them what he claims to be the New Commandments. Uh, the story sort of opens with the father returning from he- completing his quest, in, like an urban holy quest, and the story focuses on the son who has had the commandments tattooed on his torso, uh, focus on him um, going about going about his quest for the next, I think it's about two days or so. Yeah. Um, and he has to complete these uh, commandments in order to um, find enlightenment and secure himself a place in heaven next to his uh, father, who is now the enlightened one, and the fa- and the mother who sacrificed herself in lieu of uh, exchange, uh, in, in lieu of the, the commandments from the from the angel. So. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. It's pretty dark. Like as he commit, as he. Uh, it's not very family friendly. It's not family friendly. <laughs> no, it's it's not it's, it's not a not a present for grandma. It's um, got some brilliant artwork as well. Cheers. Um, yep. It's just got some great great stuff. I love the archangel and, and stuff like that. Cheers. Sort of, I'm really looking forward to the film version. I'm sort of picturing it as sort of a, a the crow sort of deal. Yep. Yeah, That's we're looking at the crow, memento, yep. requiem for a dream, clockwork orange, that sort of feel. Um, it, it'll going by what I've written so far, which scares me a little. It'll certainly be an R rating, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I like the fact that we've got a director who is well yep. connected. Um, I've seen a lot of his work, and it's exceptional. Um, and he's truly very passionate about it, and he can't wait for the uh, yep. the screenplay to come along. Let's uh, let's go to the to the standard sort of interview sort of questions. Yep. All right. Yep. First comic given to you. G- 
given. Yeah, given to you given. as a present. That's a good question. I've never been asked that one before. I didn't think that was standard at all. Uh, the first comic I was given was was The Crow, which is my favourite comic, funnily enough. Nice. And obviously uh, somewhat of inspiration on the list. Mm-hmm. Then again, I wasn't reading comics at the time. I was just given it. And then it was probably another, I'd say, 15 years before I bought another comic. Yep. I, I didn't really read them. They weren't a heavy influence on my writing or yeah. anything like that. Like, I, 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 um, well, I you can tell that. I mean, your work's not derivative of anything else. Cheers. Thanks. Yeah. I, I think that's, yeah, it probably helped towards it. Yeah. I think not having a, a strong comic background yeah. um, with regards to, you know, reading material. But yeah, yeah, The Crow. And the I crow? still love it. I still have it. It is brilliant stuff. Yeah. Artists that you admire. Artists that I admire. Henry Pop. He yep. wrote, he, he drew the list. Yep. <laughs> He's good. <laughs> I'm, like, sure, I'm like sure he appreciates you've, that. You've worked, you've worked out, you've walked out with your book before, yep. um, and said Ian Churchill, yep. and and I asked you who that was. So I'm obviously, yeah. I'm not very well. There was an ant in there. I'm not very well versed on the um on the on the comic front. Okay. Uh, let's say Colin Wilson. Colin let's Wilson. say let's say Frank Candeloro. Let's say let's say uh, Simon Wright. Let's say Bobby N. All the Aussie blokes, you know. <laughs> I've probably forgotten quite a few of them. Uh, NTP's huge fan of um, Bobby Ian and uh, Frank Cadell. Oh, look, 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 yeah, just yeah. Great. Great. Just, just like, Frank's sort of come out of left field, and like I've said in, um, like I've said to him, he's so prolific, he makes me feel sick. Yeah. I'm intending on cutting off his hands <laughs> and eating his fingers in front of him. And Bobby Ian's work, his work, um, Oxygen Indigested, yeah. just absolutely shakes me to the core. It's, yeah. it's, it's themes, and it's, it's so subtle and so well done. Favourite fan moment? Favorite fan moment? I've actually got a few, which is nice to say. Oh, okay. Um, I, I had I had uh, one girl just at, at Supernova um, break through the crowd and just like she just goes, "Oh my god, the list it fucks with my head!" Like, <laughs> <just> <laughs> yelled it out in the middle of the convention. This is because she she had volume one when it was in the installment stage, yeah. and she's like grabbed number two and just bought it, and then she was off. I'm like, "Oh, that was all right. That was nice. I appreciate that." Um, <laughs> Just the way she did it, it was so yes. dynamic and sort of just sort of blew me away a bit. That's awesome. Yeah, so that was cool. And um, I've, I've had not so much uh, fan moments with like people at cons, but I've had incredible feedback, like really personal emails. I, I think something about the list, um, people identify with it, yeah. and, and they feel that they can write to me about stuff they're going through, and then write I write back, and I've actually got you know That's really amazing. good friends now who bought the list maybe four or five years ago. And we're now you know, in constant contact, like on Facebook, or we meet up somewhere, or wow. which is really good. And like, like really, I'm serious. Like really, you know, heart-wrenching, dark stuff they pour out to me. Like, you know, when you get so- that sort of reaction from someone, you realise the power of what you've done. Yeah. And it, it beats any sales or good reviews or anything like you know, getting an email like that. Yeah. Just goes straight to your heart. Have you ever been starstruck? I was starstruck about ten minutes ago. Yeah. Um, I'll give you the most recent Starstruck. Uh, Game of Thrones, Sirio, the water dancer. Yep. He came up and he came up to the list table. I didn't recognise him, right? I don't know if you've seen the series yeah, or not. Yeah, I've got a huge Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, same. We can yeah. talk about that for the rest of you. You don't mind. Yeah. Um, and he's come up and because he's got an English accent and I didn't recognise him because he's obviously not in costume. Yeah. And he's like, look at this. Go, oh, I love this. I love this. This is all good. And he had a, he had a copy of Frank's... Um, Dr. Ziputnik, I probably mispronounced that, sorry Frank. Um, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, have a look and all this sort of gear. And I, and I you know, like an idiot, I thought, how are you uh, connected to Armageddon? He goes, oh, I was, uh, I was in Game of Thrones. And I'm like, 
holy shit, it's Sirio, the water dancer. That's big, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so I've got photos with him and he, he's got a copy of the list now. And, That's awesome. You know, so I, as soon as he said it, as soon as he said it, I'm like, I can't talk now. <laughs> <laughs> I was having this, you know, conversation where it was all just flowing. And then once he sees like one of my favorite characters out of Game of Thrones, I'm like, I'm like I got a little starstruck. <laughs> Started tripping over my tongue and everything. So, um, yeah, very it was really cool. <laughs> cool. And Guy Pierce, I met Guy Pierce briefly after, uh, recently, sorry, briefly after uh, Memento came out. Yeah. And I sort of, I just gave him a shy little wave and said, love Memento, mate. He gave me a nod and I just toddled off like a blushing little schoolgirl. <laughs> he is so, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, one, of our, one of our best exports, I think. What would be, if you weren't making, like, like creating, what yep. would you be doing if you weren't, weren't doing that sort of stuff? It's, that's an incredibly good question also. <laughs> uh, and while I think about it, it's difficult to verbalise because I, I think my life is defined by and much more fulfilling because I have it. So to the point where I probably can't picture a life without it. And I've always been, not to sound wanky, but always been sort of a little bit subversive with life and, and my idea um, of what you're meant to achieve and why. And I've never really agreed with the standard model. Yep. Um, and creativity allows me to express what I feel about things without having to bottle it up um, and, and just go through life being frustrated and unfulfilled. So it's, it's very fulfilling. And I think to answer your question in one word would be unfulfilled. Wow, that's awesome. But that was an awesome question and I enjoyed uh, being asked it. Awesome. So thank you very much for your time, Paul. No, thank you, really David. I really appreciate That was a great interview, mate. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you very much Lovely. for Lovely. Thank you very much, Dave. Appreciate it, man. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed those interviews. I certainly did. And I know for a fact from their tweets that uh, they did too. <laughs> so... Thanks again, guys. That is really, really appreciated. Uh, coming up next, coming soon. November 1st is the release of Sinister, which I know nothing about. Which is another horror movie. Are we entering the horror cycle again, are we? Yeah, we are entering the horror cycle. No, uh, I don't know that one at all. As well as Electric Children, uh, which is the story of a uh, devout Mormon girl who believes in Immaculate Conception and... and is pregnant and but uh, and wow. think, oh, mm. thinks thinks that she was impregnated by music. So Mormon <laughs> Juno, <laughs> yeah, sounds kind of interesting. Uh, the Baby Makers, which doesn't sound very interesting at all. Um, it just this sounds awful. Uh, a, a guy and his friends rob a, a sperm bank to get the sperm that he donated years ago. It's, oh, it just sounds. The concept is just there. That sounds exactly like the kind of movie that I don't want yeah. to watch. And uh, Bachelorette, uh, a story about a, a group of women who were invited to the wedding of a person that they uh, hated and picked on in school. So I'm not too sure if that's a comedy or a drama or what, but I uh, know it sounds awful. The title alone's put me off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sounds like a rip-off of The Bridesmaids. Mm. Does a bit. So I'm not too sure what the deal is there. Bridesmaid should sue. <laughs> uh, then on November 8th, we get Bullet to the Head. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. Literally. Uh, Premium Rush with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt once again on the big screen, uh, but this time as a, uh, a bicycle courier in uh, New York. Got some very interesting these are bike cam shots, but uh, other than that, I'm, I'm not interested in any way, shape, or form. Um, and actually, interestingly enough... Uh, 
the city of New York, there's a, there's a campaign in the city of New York, in New York to sort of uh, regulate bicycle couriers because they like cause a lot of accidents and stuff. And they're using this film as their sort of, well, this glorifies bicycle couriers. And, uh, and they, they rush through the red lights. and it's Just like, imagine the speeder bikes in Star Wars. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> You'd be killing people. Those things have got like things at the front. You'd chop <laughs> people in half. Uh, anyway. Uh, unless you had a lightsaber. Then you just... Uh, you're also getting uh, House at the End of the Street, uh, so yet another horror film, uh, and a remake. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the original film for its crapness, so I'll be willing to see the remake. Hopefully um, the remake is as crap as the original. <laughs> yeah. uh, seven Psychopaths. It's a big week, November 8th. Uh, yeah, Seven Psychopaths. So... Yeah, it could be interesting. Yeah. Trailer looks interesting. Yeah. Um, and the trailer that didn't look interesting at all and maybe also almost want to walk out of the cinema... Alex Cross. Oh, dude. Boring books. God. Boring and, uh, protagonist. And Matt Fox just looking creepy as hell. So, I don't know. This doesn't look very interesting at all. That's it's what they're terrific. selling on. That's what they're selling on, though. Not, you know, Alex Cross or James Patterson. Yeah. But the fact that Matthew Fox is the villain. <laughs> yeah, I know. He gets a huge part in the, in the trailer. Mm. I mean, you don't have to see the film after seeing that trailer. No. You're not selling it on James Patterson, the number one his most successful a, author in the world right now. His name's not mentioned in mention the trailer it. at all. Maybe really? maybe he disowned it. I was expecting he's something like, you know, and James Patterson's Alex Cross. But no. Well, as the biggest grossing author of 2011, you think that they would acknowledge him at least. Chris hey, Cross will make you jump. Jump. <laughs> <laughs> No return that didn't happen to move on. Don't forget you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast or tweet us at, at nerdculturecast or you can even leave a comment on any post on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe! Subscribe! One of us! One of us! Open your mind to me. Open your mind. That's it for me. That's it from the crew. Unless they want to hand around. I'm cool with that. Richo! Make room for me! (laughs) Luke! There's too much room. Stop! I want to get out! Hey, Crystal! Help! Help me! (laughs) Wrong movie. It's like the fly. Help me! Help me! (laughs) Bye, everybody! Bye-bye! Thanks for listening.